0: It seems like a mountain, but there are people that can help push you uphill. We've done it in dozens of communities. Um, It's tough, but it can be done.
1: You're listening to Small-Minded, the podcast that believes being small is a good thing because small steps lead to big impact, small towns have a big heart, and small businesses play a big role in our modern way of life. I'm your host, Molly Knuth, and here at Small-Minded, we share stories and strategies to help small towns and small businesses flourish. Here's to a life well-lived, being small-minded. Hey there, listener. Welcome to another episode of the Small-Minded Podcast. Now, you guys know that this podcast is all about small towns, small communities, small businesses, but how these small entities are not bound by their size. We can still accomplish big things and have a big impact, and all it takes is one person with an idea. In today's episode, we are going to continue our series about the TLC Learning Center Project in Charles City, Iowa. In last week's episode, we spoke with Pam Ost, who is the director at that child care facility. And then in today's episode, I had the opportunity to sit down for an interview with Dan Levi of Levi Architecture, who was the design firm associated with that project. When I came into this episode, truthfully, I was thinking we were gonna talk about what they did on the TLC project in particular, but what I come away from this interview with is so much more. In today's episode, I hope you hear the passion that Dan Levi has for childcare. And not only designing really great childcare facilities that, you know, meet specs and DHS guidelines, but his knowledge, his wisdom, and the supports and resources that Levi Architecture brings to the table for various small communities in a variety of sizes to make sure that they can offer affordable, dependable, high-quality childcare. Because as Dan says in today's episode, child care can really impact the whole community. It impacts economic development. It impacts morale in your small town. And it really does create community around what you can offer because it brings people to your town. So in today's episode, I hope that you get some takeaways from Dan about ways that you can bring really great child care to your town and how it doesn't have to be this huge, daunting task if you bring in the right leadership, the right players, and you can maintain that vision for what your community can be. So, without further ado, let me introduce Dan Levi of Levi Architecture. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dan. I'm so excited to have you here to talk about childcare. In rural communities, how you play a role in that, and give our listeners a little bit of agency on what they can do in their own communities if they have a need like this themselves.
0: Okay. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate uh, the opportunity just to talk about childcare. Um, it is a pressing need in uh, our communities, especially our rural communities, um, which I guess I was all small town except for maybe Des Moines, really. <laughs> uh, but it is uh, childcare is a is a desperate need, not only just for um, the safety and security of our children for their early education, but also to get mom and dad comfortable so they can go to work. We have a labor shortage problem in our in our um, state in particular. And we see a lot of parents choosing to stay home out of necessity because they can't find or can't afford childcare. So it is, um, um, childcare is not only about the children and moms and dads, it's about the economic health of our communities. Young people will not move or stay in small towns if they don't have childcare or affordable housing. So these are two major components of what we see from um, growth stagnation or even decline uh, that we see, honestly, in most small towns. Uh, And then again, their economic health.
1: This is going to be, I'm so excited to hear more about your area of expertise and to bring ideas to the podcast. But before we get into too much of the nuts and bolts of the conversation, can you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit more about who you are, what you do, and we'll go from there.
0: Okay, so again, my name's Dan Levi. I own Levi Architecture. Uh, we're a small architecture firm in Cedar Falls. Um, we started in 2005. Um, after I had worked for uh, a couple of other companies in uh, the Waterloo Cedar Falls area, I went to Iowa State. Most architects in Iowa go to Iowa State. It's the only accredited architecture school we have. And so I grew up a Hawkeye fan, but now I'm a diehard Cyclone <laughs> uh, because of that transition. Uh, moved to Waterloo with my wife, who uh, grew up in a small town just north. And so it was halfway in between um, um, Nashua, where we live, and Cedar Rapids, where I grew up. And I knew I wanted to do architecture from back in high school, and doing some drafting classes and some design work, and uh, really enjoyed my time. And before I got into the program at Iowa State, it's a it's a fairly lengthy program. And and once we got in, it, you know, it was a lot of fun. After graduation, um, you know, we remember hearing about how architecture can really impact people's lives, and 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 what it means to contribute. To your, to your community through the built environment but it really wasn't until about you know five or six years in to practice that you really started to see the impact and then you really realized what they were trying to teach you on uh, on a very philosophical level you got to see it you know, really in in person when you saw clients uh, move into buildings that you helped design and then a year later you said oh we you know our, our employees just love the new, uh, new building they're in. they're having so much fun, they've got more natural light, they've got more space. it's you know it's it's helping grow our environment or it's helping us further our business. And that's when you really realize that um, what we do is is I like to uh, poke a little fun, that we don't we don't build things. We just draw pretty pictures. It's contractors <laughs> who do the real work and build these projects. Um, but it really is important. Um, the decisions that we make and and how we work with our client and walk them through the process of design. To end up with a building um, that can further um, not only their goals, but also impact uh, the community as a well.
1: whole. Oh, I think that's so important. A lot of the listeners here on this podcast, in particular, are very community minded. So I love that you bring in that it's not just about individual projects or individual businesses. You're obviously going into a project with that goal, but you have a much more global perspective of how this will help them five years down the road as a business, but also as a community. I think that is so important when we're talking about the value that you as an architect bring to the table.
0: Well, the whole industry of architecture is supposed to be about um, not just bringing, adding value uh, through our service to our clients specifically and and their built project, but it's also uh, to be thought of at a different scale. Where we're thinking about what is this impact and this project's impact on the neighborhood it's placed, as well as its community, how it's placed on the site, how does it front, what does it present? Um, we all have that, uh, you know, that view of a small town where um, they no longer, you know, they've had consolidated school, and so they don't have a school, and you have a dilapidated or rundown school that's no longer being used in a community, and that's really a blight, and it really it brings down the the morale of a community. And so, how does the built environment do the opposite? How can we elevate that and, and make ourselves feel great about our town. Um, and that's what architecture is supposed to be about, of course, while uh, also addressing all of the needs of the specific client.
1: Oh, so interesting. Okay. So you said that you had worked for another firm for a number of years and then decided to go on your own with Levi Architecture. Can you inform us a little bit about like, what made you decide to go that route and start your own firm? What did that allow you to do? That you hadn't been able to do prior.
0: Uh, one, one, simply experience. Uh, you need to be registered um, architect, and at the time I was coming out of college, you had to intern uh, for three years before you could even sit for exams and then pass like the bar or CPA's uh, licensing exam. It's it's very similar, um, rigorous tests. And once you did that, then you can call yourself an architect, and then you can do whatever you want. Um, and that and I worked continued to work for another firm for for a number of years, and and I and I started to you know, see my own path as being different than the path that the firm I was in. Great people at that firm doing great work, um, wonderful uh, community members. I just saw a slightly different path. And I'm I do better in an environment where I'm in charge. <laughs> and I wasn't in charge at that firm. And I I don't always play well with others uh, in a certain aspect. So um, and I wanted to break out and do my own thing. And I had a father-in-law who was an entrepreneur and had started his own business, it was extremely encouraging. I'd made a lot of great contacts in the uh, six years that I um, worked, uh, excuse me, eight years that I worked um, before I started the firm. And, and so through those contacts, we had an opportunity to to get our own work. And, and I was bringing in work and I thought, hey, I can do this on my own, set my own schedule, uh, make my own way. And and, it, and it's a very personal choice. Not everyone has that that entrepreneurial spirit. Others would rather form larger groups and collaborate and and share resources, and and share intellectual property, and build each other up. Um, And that's another great way to do it, and you can tackle bigger projects. I really like being more hands-on. We do a lot of work with contractors as part of the the team, rather than the design team off in the corner doing their own thing. We like to involve the, the contractor and the client really through the design process, more so than I had been taught in the other two firms I had worked at. And so to do that, you have to have a little more, you know, a little bit more of an intimate relationship and that takes a little more time. And so you have to take on maybe smaller projects at first until you build up enough staff. That's really excited about doing that. So it seemed to fit that we would, you know, I would take on fewer projects um, and and that meant, you know, less money that cut expenses. Easy way to do that is just to do it with yourself or one or two employees. Oh,
1: this is, So for listeners who listened to last week's episode leading into our episode today, they heard from Pam, who is in Charles City. And in her episode, she talks about this process, like you just described, where she said it wasn't just us working in silos, like individuals. She said what she really appreciated about working with your firm in particular, and then Woodruff Construction, who is involved in the project as well, is that you guys approach this as, she called it a triumvirate, So you're all like working together to get this project across the finish line. It's not like we're working in this department, you're working in that department, we did our job and now you're on your own. But I think that's so reflective of what happens in communities, especially in these smaller rural communities where one project or one idea can really unite a whole bunch of people and then elevate the whole community. And I know that you at Levi Architecture do really like to take on some of these Community elevating kinds of projects. Are there any that stick out in your mind over the years of your experience that you're like, yes, this one or these couple or the ones in this industry are the ones that we really like to get involved in?
0: That's a great question. Um, yeah, we, we've got a couple. We've done some community foundation work, which is, you know, those are organizations, nonprofits that collect funds, invest them, and then turn around and, and give out the proceeds to really uh, wonderful, needy. Uh, needing organizations, usually nonprofits, in communities so they they, they gather dollars and then they redistribute. We're um, blessed enough to be involved in that project for their new facility, uh, for all their new staff because it was a growing one here in in the Waterloo Cedar Falls area. Um, but industry-wise, the ones that we get the the, the most you know the, the most satisfaction, the most return on our investment um, from a feel-good standpoint is the childcare industry because. What you have is an industry that is financially upside down. We pay teachers in this industry, you know, terribly low uh, salaries. Uh, no, if any, maybe a few benefits, but usually none, uh, other than maybe the director. Um, and yet, uh, we're still charging mom and dad a certain amount of money. And when they say they're nonprofit, they they don't mean they're just not distributing funds and profit sharing. I mean, they're not making money. They are Mm -hmm. really tough and and we have enough experience um, with the work that we do in childcare, um, which gets to be pretty unique. But in order to see these projects be successful uh, in in the projects we've been involved with, the most successful ones have always involved collaboration where it's not one person's idea. It's not one person's intellectual property. It's not one person's resources. It's when we collaborate. So like like we prefer to design, which is exactly what Charles City is, is where, the three-legged stool uh, is what's going to hold you up. And you have an ownership group, you have a design group, and you have a building group, and a and construction group, if you will. And when those three are working as equal partners towards a reasonable goal for reasonable cost and a reasonable schedule, that's when we have successful projects because we use everyone's expertise and everyone's idea are, are equally valued in that process. So when we get to communities where they're trying to do childcare, it's such a tough industry From a financial standpoint that the only way it's going to be successful is if they have buy-in from that community because we're going to have to fundraise the capital we're going to have to have enough parents that are interested in keeping their kids in the community and not sending them to the next town over let's say um you're going to have to find people that want to work there and you're going to have to find land you're going to find the right location for a child care even a small town location still matters um it still makes it easier for mom and dad and that's what we're trying to do ultimately is make it um, cost effective and easy so that we can serve all of the children and all the families in those communities. So working with Pam, she is all about collaboration. It always takes a leader. And Pam was a phenomenal leader on that project through the design process and even now through the construction process. Those projects, it takes a champion. Usually it's a board that is reduced down to maybe a building committee, but there's usually just one or two people that are absolutely going to be the tip of the spear, if you will. Um, in Waterloo, we did a project for Friendship Village, uh, elderly retirement community. Um, Lisa Gates, the CEO, she just walked in and said, we're going to make this happen. I'm going to convince our board. We're going to do this. And they needed it for recruitment and retention. Also that intergenerational opportunity to mix um, the elderly with children. It's tons of studies out there. It's a wonderful wow. opportunity. In Dysart, um, uh, Wanda, uh Wanda Peterson, she volunteers her time at the center, retired volunteers her time on the board, and she absolutely on a couple of issues, she just hammered through some problems, was not going to take no for an answer. It was going to get figured out. I would get text messages from her on a Sunday afternoon. She's, we've got a problem. I'm here on the job site, and I don't like something. And, And she was right. It was wrong. She, I mean, she knew what she was talking about. And it always got done. But it takes a champion leading a community that is engaged, that is interested, that is all about community support and you know, rising tide lifts all boats. And so um, when we lift up the whole community, then everyone benefits from it. And, and so it always takes those champions. We've got a couple of other projects that I could, I could name that are very similar. It's a group of dedicated individuals that are just gonna say, this is an important need in our community. Th- th- this is something that we are lacking and it's hurting our community. What are we gonna do about it? Usually it's a series of parents that no longer have kids in childcare, but they went through the hurt they saw it and they said, I don't want other people in our community to go through this. We need to to buoy our community. This is one of those ways we can go after that.
1: Dan, there are so many different things I could pull from what you just said. But for sake of time, I'm going to highlight just a couple. But I love that you said that it takes community buy-in. It takes everybody being on the same page and identifying that there are these certain projects that can really not just affect a few, but when we see this to the end, it can affect the all. And with childcare projects in particular, it has the effect of doing that because the more that you invest in your youngest folks, your earliest generations, the more returns you can see down the road. And I think that sometimes in certain communities, they can, there can be an attitude sometimes of like, I don't have kids in daycare anymore, so why would I help support this project? But what I hear from you is that in the communities where these projects are not just ideas, they actually are now things and buildings and have been seen through to the end. It took a leader and it took buy-in from everybody, which I think our listeners can take from this as being two things that they can start in their own communities if they want to see something like this happen.
0: Uh, absolutely. Uh, Dizer is a great example of, of that. They didn't have a child care uh, in their community. Uh, a small group started one. There was a couple of classrooms at the elementary school that were being underutilized. So um, they worked out a lease agreement with the school district. They started running a child care out of the elementary school. Well, population starts to go up. Enrollment at the school starts to go up. School needs the rooms. So the school has to kick them out. So we start a project, they call us, we start a project with them. We build a new um, child care center. They've been open for about a year. Enrollment still going up. Now you have land being sold, discussion of more annexed land in the city of Geyser. And now you've got uh, buildable lots coming on, uh, online because the developer saw the opportunity because there was such a need in that community because people want to move or stay in town at least. So the next thing you know, now we're starting to increase population of our small community. And we're not trying to turn Dyser into Cedar Falls or Waterloo, but when you have growth in your community, it provides certain opportunities for um, economic health. It can uh, then provide greater amenities in your small town and you can still get your small town feel and have your bedroom community, or maybe even a couple of shops and a couple of um, business opportunities in town, but it it helps that economic uh, growth. It helps that economic health of those small communities, which just makes it an even greater place to live.
1: Oh, that's, I feel myself being pulled away from the prep questions that I sent your way because there's just so many interesting things that you bring up. Um, But one of the things that came to my mind just out of what you said, so in these communities that are seeing growth and you're talking about Dysart in particular and the opportunity to like expand and have land opportunities, how do you assess for like childcare in particular, where we've already talked about how they're kind of cash strapped? How do we know like what is the next best solution for them? Do we build brand new and get some land ourselves? Do we look for buildings that are unoccupied and renovate? How do you come in as the architect and help advise a childcare center on that?
0: Well, here's where the conversation is going to get a little sideways. So we've already talked about my role in architecture early on. And most listeners probably understand what architect does is you think about a school. They're going to add on to a school. So we're going to design, we're going to work with the school district. We're going to design a school edition. They're going to send it out to bid, public bid. Anybody can bid on it that's qualified. You take the low bid, you build it. Um, that's pretty typical. What we like to do is negotiated work, where we're using the we're picking the contractor first, maybe just the general contractor. All the subs we might still bid those out, but we're going to work with contractor or contractors as a team. In conjunction with that, what we like to do, and what what we've really been employed to do a lot in in smaller communities only in the childcare industry, mind you, I don't do this for other industries, is my team will come in and we will do community-wide surveys. We will do an assessment of what is the real need? What's the population growth? What's the current childcare situation? How many underserved kids are there in the community? Uh, And then we'll do a need. How old are your kids? Do you need care? What are the days you need care? What are the hours you need care? You know, would you be interested in childcare in town if it was cost-competitive? What if it was a little bit more? What if it was a little bit less? We send these surveys out. Then we start to work on partnerships. What is the school district's interest in seeing kids with a better early childhood education foundation coming into the kindergarten age group um, before, you know, so they're coming more prepared from the educational standpoint? What is the real need? Can we quantify? Can we come back to you with empirical data that says this is the true need? And we use that to do two things. First, it provides us the information that then we put into a pro forma or business plan, where we actually tell you, if you want to center with this many kids and you're going to pay teachers this, and you're going to charge X, we can tell you how much you're going to make or not make at the end of the year based on industry experience that we know what it takes to run a center, down to how many first aid kits you need, how much a month are you going to spend on paper supplies, all of the educational um, supplies. The cubbies, the lockers, the the catering equipment, or a full kitchen if you're going to do all this. We have all of this data. We've done this dozens of times. All this data. We build this the spreadsheets, pro forma. And we use that then as a design tool to say, we can't afford to build that big, or we can't afford to build that small. And we can run those numbers. What if it was a little bigger? What if it was a little smaller? What if we paid our teachers a little more? What if we charged a little less? What does that do to the pro forma, our year-end revenue over expense? So we create a business plan that is based on very sound accounting principles and is conservative because we always want to come in being Mm -hmm. conservative. Uh, For example, we don't run a center if it's 50 kids. We don't run the the numbers at 50. We're only going to run them at 45. You know, we're always going to say you got some empty slots there. And then we build out, you know, what the wages would be, what's your competition at the local Quick Start or Casey's that you're competing for. What's the next town over charging for infant care? All of that data goes into a spreadsheet and we come up with this really robust business plan that is used to market. Then we know, based on need and what the pro forma says, okay, this is how big a building we need. This is how many kids we need to provide service for. Is that new build or do you have existing building stock that we can go look at and evaluate, do a cost opinion of? So now we know how much we need to fundraise. So it's always leading back towards those capital costs. And then how are we going to fundraise? There's lots of grant opportunities. Uh, Right now, the state is in the middle of redistributing federal dollars through the CARES Act. Um, And we're on distribution three. We believe there'll be five uh, based on what the ultimately the child care task force assigned by the governor came up with. And she seems to be leaning towards doing what the task force is suggesting. Um, uh, At the last round, um, the governor helped DHS come up with some extra dollars. There's $37 million was distributed in the last round uh, of these dollars. And we had uh, we had twelve projects awarded monies out of out of that uh, of those funds. Some were twenty five thousand. Some were three quarter million dollars. So there's real dollars out there. And then there's other grants. There's other foundations. There's other revolving loans to RECs and uh, Alliant Energy and other um, utility organizations that are mandated by the state to to give back to communities. There's uh, you know Blackhawk Gaming in our area is, is interested in. In dabbling in childcare and helping support childcare for those uh, more needy families, um, and so we, we help them from a marketing standpoint. And, and the way you fundraise is you have to show the need, and we we don't want to make this a feel-good story. We want to show you empirical data. It is a feel-good story in and of itself, but you've got to show that need empirically, and then work on partnerships. How can we all share resources within the community? So that's involving the city, the county, the state. Other nonprofits that redistribute um, nonprofit dollars or uh, fundraise dollars, um, getting into the private sector. What benefits can we give uh, a private uh, industry if they're willing to contribute to a project? Is it you know special a uh, special waiting list um, prioritization, or is it guaranteed spaces in a center? Um, all of these ideas are ones that we have used in communities to different. Every community is different. Again, we have reoccurring themes, but we have different resources and opportunities, and so. Every community is different. And so we evaluate what those opportunities are and then help them put together a marketing plan. So they know who to go ask, how much you need to be asking for. So they fundraise dollars. So then we can move forward to eventually actually design and build a child care. Uh, if they have existing buildings, we look at those. Those are really challenging opportunities um, because childcare is such a unique creature. Um, it's unlike any other industry we're working. I mentioned Lisa Gates earlier with um, Friendship Village. Um, elderly care, a CEO of an elderly care organization in Waterloo, she says next to skilled nursing, so very high-end need individuals in their care, child care is the most heavily regulated industry she knows of. It's tough. It's really tough. And it's for a reason. We're protecting young people, right? I mean, so it should be this way. So having all these regulations, so you've got significant building code, fire code issues, and then you also have DHS standards that are uh, through the Iowa Administrative Code that are on top of that yet. And it breaks down all of these different things, the number of of teachers or the number of students per teacher in a classroom. So when we design new, really we start designing is around from the pro forma and these ratios, these student teacher ratios that you have to abide by. We start there, we start these numbers. Because if you don't design it properly, you can design an entity to fail for sure through architecture. So you have to know these ratios. You have to know programmatically how a center runs. It's inherently different than an office building or a school because of these ratios and because of these uh, DHS standards that are all uh, very well-meaning, but they are difficult. And you do need to know what you're talking about so that you can design around them. So when we talk about existing buildings, the size of the room, the distribution of the spaces, um, the infrastructure of those buildings many times are not ideal. And so if you can get the building given to you, well, that's one thing, but what you can be given is also a liability and the construction costs can be just as much or more as new construction and it won't be as efficient. I can design smaller for the same number of kids that I can renovate another building just because of that efficiency issue. And so a lot of times existing buildings can be complicated. Sometimes they work out uh, and we have a couple of those projects. The TLC, for example, in um, Charles City is, is a great example of the reuse of a an, not abandoned but a no longer used original middle school. Older part of the building, beautiful building, was sold off to a developer for housing. And the rest of the 1970s building but is being held onto by the school district and being leased back to on the TLC, who's putting a bunch of money into it to renovate it up to the standards they need with the hope that someday they buy the building from the school district. But now, rather than having a rundown, abandoned building in the middle of a residential area. A blight on the community, uh, you know, uh, hurts everyone's, you know, moral—not uh, moral, but uh, emotional's, you know, thought process about what their community is. Now we have this revitalization of this existing mm-hmm. building, and it's being used for great purpose: housing and childcare, the two things that most small towns lack, desperately lack. Um, and so we're able to be a part of this renovation, this rejuvenation within a community for a building that otherwise might just get torn down and have this, you know, two and a half square block hole in the middle of a residential area—that's um, not, you know, that, that's not exciting. That's not fun. That's not small town. That—that that feels, uh, you know, that hurts. Um, I live in a small town of about 1,800, 2,000 people. You know, we don't want to lose our school. We don't want to have a, or or have a, you know, a two-block-wide stretch of, of vacant lots. Um, that just is a reminder every time you drive by. We don't have a whole lot going on in our community. Our community is shrinking. Our our community is suffering. This is this is excitement for a whole community to reuse these buildings. But it is but it is tough to make it efficient. It's, it's complicated.
1: I love that you said that it's not like it's a cookie cutter solution for every community that you're invited into and evaluate. Like every community has different things. We've got different people at play, different industries, different morale, if you will, too. And so I love that you guys come in with this procedure or process that you can follow and you can give them metrics and data that gives them a snapshot of if this is feasible, but I love that you come in and you work with what's there too. Because when you were talking about like these older buildings that can be such like, yeah, people have memories associated with these buildings and seeing them falling apart. And I know on our main street, we had buildings with the ceiling caving in and that's, a, that's hard to overcome. It but is. Sometimes all it takes is that one person with the vision, that leader then bringing the right people into play. And what I would argue for is someone who's a specialist like yourself and your firm who can give you real concrete data, guide you through this process Mm -hmm. because there are so many things at play, especially in childcare, like you had to say about all of the DHS, the federal guidelines, all of those things. So it's important to bring the right people into play. I love that you brought that up.
0: Well, you brought up people have these memories and it reminded me, We did an open house uh, at TLC that Pam had put on, and and really that project was Pam and the superintendent, uh, Mike Fisher, and they saw a vision of of how they could share resources and make that project happen. And Mike has been an advocate for the project because he sees, as a superintendent, he sees what his population in his school is on a daily, but weekly basis, I should say. He's being told always, you got to get more kids. We got to grow our, our community within our school district. And then he sees the lack of preparedness for kids that don't have early childhood opportunities and kids that do as they come in to that kindergarten age group. And so he, he he's like, well, what can you do to expand? We need more kids coming in that are better prepared at that age. And so he was, he's was he been absolutely a necessity as part of that project to make this happen. But during this open house, we had multiple people come through because it was you know, community-wide come in. Let's see what we're doing. Because a lot of people were skeptical. Wait a minute, the school district's renting? school district building for a dollar to this nonprofit. What is this about? You can't do that. And and educating them on the process and what it is and how it's working and what the long-term goal is. And we had people come through. Well, I took band in that class in 1972. I taught in that classroom right there for 30 years. I taught science or I can't remember what, what the, what the curriculum was. These people came through, they knew the building. I mean, they, they had been in the building, they lived in that building. I mean, that was their career. And it was great to see how excited they were that the building wasn't going to be torn down and it was going to be reused for such a, a fantastic need in the community like childcare.
1: And it is like part of getting that community buy-in too. Like you talked sure. about having people come through, see the facility itself, and then they're like bringing up these memories. Like that is just helping you establish this need in the community. And our town of Cascade up, uh, it was like early 2010s, we had a similar situation where we had an older rundown building. It was where kids were having childcare, but part of their, um, plea to the larger community where there were a lot of people saying, oh, they have a building. It's fine. Was to bring people through and say, okay, here's what our kids are currently getting staffed. Here's what we could do if we had more space in addition to like just remaining open. So Mm -hmm. it is sometimes about helping people get that vision in their heads and giving them a picture of what it could be and how it could help the community as a whole. And like you said, at the beginning, a rising tide lifts all ships. Mm -hmm. How can investing in this age group really benefit all of us through this project?
0: Again, childcare is a crisis across the Midwest. And we'll say particularly across Iowa. we have reoccurring themes, but we have unique opportunities and unique challenges. And, and so we want to get into a community. We want to, you know, empirically, you know, a uh, catalog what their opportunities and their challenges are, and then use that as the marketing for that community to get everyone as much as you can, get them excited or at least uh, not apathetic uh, about that process and, and about um, the, the opportunity to expand or create childcare in their community and what that can do overall. Um, If for nothing else, for the kids and the families, if we don't even want to talk about economic growth. But we can tell you economic growth is a serious issue, especially in small town. We had the opportunity um, to uh, be invited uh, to a congressional subcommittee on um, rural economic growth um, and how childcare plays a role in that by Abby Finkenauer. So uh, my team went out to to D.C. and presented uh, to a panel of of congressional leaders on economic development in rural Midwest, or rural America. And, and how important childcare is and what that can serve. And, and a couple of years later, you know, we, we see a series of bills and I'm certainly not saying we had a part to play in that, but it was a, an opportunity to educate congressional members. And now we're starting to see federal funds come through on this because childcare has now taken a, a seat at the front of the table. And people are seeing that it is a crisis because it is affecting the economy because people are staying home because it's not worth them to go to work to make a couple of dollars extra a month. Um, because it costs so much to go there because paying teachers on our pro formas, we're in communities, we're talking about paying lead teachers in classrooms, $14 an hour, no benefits. We're talking about paying $11 for assistant teachers. Quickstar is paying more than that. Casey's is paying more than that. McDonald's is paying more than that. That is upside down. These are people that are caring for our children. It shouldn't have to be this way, but because of the ratios, because of the regulations, it is that daunting to run a center. And I'm not advocating for deregulation or for changing ratios, They're there for a reason, it's entirely about safety, but this is where we have to have the private sector and and maybe a little bit more government intervention with understanding this is an economic growth issue. This is a vitality issue in our communities. And when we have an opportunity to speak with partnerships with private industries in these individual communities, I'm telling you well more than 50%, uh, maybe 75% of businesses we talk to realize that their employees and their employee pool is hurting and childcare is a component of that struggle. And they are willing to be involved in a conversation about sharing resources. We're not going in there asking for handouts for our, our clients, but they are willing to come to the table and have these conversations. They get it. They see it every day because their HR department is, is having all kinds of trouble hiring. How can we help? How can we benefit from this? You know, We can talk you through that that whole philosophy and what we've seen in other communities.
1: This is like, we opened the conversation that we could talk about this for hours, all the different facets of it. But I do think it's important to reiterate what you said about childcare as part of economic development. If you want to have this conversation about how to build, rebuild, revitalize our small towns or continue Mm -hmm. growth patterns, childcare has to be part of that conversation. It's not just about infrastructure. It's not just about amenities and bringing in cool restaurants. How are we providing childcare? Because without that, we don't have workers. Without workers, we can't grow. So I love that you brought that up.
0: Again, affordable housing and childcare are what either keep young people in our small communities or what draws them to our smaller communities. And and they'll travel for work. I mean, that's established. You go to any community, any small town in in Iowa, people will travel 45 minutes. I drive 45 minutes from my house to my office because my wife said, we're moving to Nashville. So Well, we're living in actually, but my office is in Cedar Falls. That's where my clients are. So I need to be here with my clients. I'll drive for work. I'm not driving, you know, I'm not going to drive 45 minutes for childcare. Uh, People will not do that. Eventually they will move to where the childcare is. And so if we don't have those things or we don't have affordable housing, again, um, those are the two things that are really economic drivers in small towns. This
1: has been such a great conversation, Dan. So what if we have listeners out there who they have ideas, or they hear themselves in parts of our conversation today, and they're in a community that needs childcare, or they have an idea for ways that they can help. Where do they even start if they don't know what to do first?
0: Well, uh, they they certainly could call my office and talk to me. um, And that would be great. But a state agency that is uh, divided divides the state into six regions. And so in Northeast Iowa, where we're at, we're in region two, uh, child care resource and referral. That is a state funded agency that is uh, the repository for all information child care. So if you're looking for child care, if you have a complaint about child care, if you wanna know the quality of certain child cares in your community, if you wanna know what the rates are, the average rates are in your town or in your county, all of this data, is available for free at Child Care Resource and Referral. Um, they, it is a wonderful organization in Northeast Iowa. The, the staff there are extremely robust. I would say it's the best out of the six in Northeast Iowa. Mary Jansen uh, runs that department or runs uh, CCRNR for Region Two, and we work together very closely. I'm actually a board member of the organization that houses CCRNR in Northeast Iowa, so I've known Mary for many, many years. And her and her staff that are sprinkled all over um, Northeast Iowa, I believe it's 19 counties, um, we serve through that organization. They are the place where moms and dads can go. They're the place where home providers can go for more training information. They're the place where centers can go for help. It is, it is a great uh, starting point for anything childcare. care. Um, and if they don't have the answer or, that's, or it's not their particular area to answer, they know exactly where to send you to go there.
1: Oh, and i think that just sometimes even educating people in this case our listeners that these agencies and organizations exist they might not even know that there is such a thing as childcare resource and referral but by just educating one person about the fact that this is there and then giving some connecting points big things can happen in your small town too it's about identifying vision bringing in key players and then as We got to hear through today's conversation, having those people work together for the benefit of the community.
0: If you're trying to expand or even really, if you're trying to start new in a community, it is a daunting task. It seems pretty simple. And the more layers you peel off of it, uh, the more it smells. I mean, it's it's tough. (laughs) It's really tough through the regulatory issues, through the cost, through the ideas of how you're even going to fundraise these kinds of dollars. Um, how many kids you can serve, how you run it. It's not just, it's not babysitting. We say early childhood education because we are not babysitters in this industry. Mm -hmm. They're educated, credentialed professionals, and they are providing an incredible value um, to your child. And centers are not for everyone. To solve the childcare problem, it's going to take centers. It's going to take home providers as well. Because some families would rather see our child in a much smaller environment And there are great registered home providers all over the state, and they do great work, and we can help them too. But centers is the easy target because we we can focus on more kids. You know, We can get more people in the community excited, and so we want to impact as many people as possible. So that's the low-hanging fruit, but do not miss on the home providers. They are an important cog in that machine, in that industry, to satisfy the needs uh, across our communities because they're all unique, and individuals in those communities are unique. So uh, the resources and referral, uh, your taxpayer dollars are paying for this. Reach out to them. They ha- they're an incredible resource um, uh, for them. And then usually we get involved a little bit later. And then, you know, and now we've got a vision and we help cast uh, or find that, that vision that a community has and a community group has. And, and we come in and we can do all kinds of stuff. We can, we can really help. But ask for help. There are people that do this. Um, it is daunting. You need to find an expert in the different areas and let them help move the vision forward um, that you have for your community, but don't get discouraged. It seems like a mountain, but there are people that can help push you uphill. We've done it in dozens of communities. Um, it's tough, but it can be done.
1: That's so awesome. Um, I do have a question that just came to mind. So like when you get to feel, I shouldn't even say this because that was such a good like message to end on, but I just want to know. Um, when you get to the point of the project where like everybody's excited, everybody's on board, they want this to happen, but like you said, it's daunting and you're going to run into not one challenge, multiple challenges, and eventually people are going to lose steam. What have you seen work in the projects that you've been involved in to keep that momentum going and to keep people united in the same direction so we don't lose steam and get overwhelmed by all of the tasks that are in front?
0: Yeah, it's about community involvement and marketing strategies. And so being in front of information, don't let rumor mills go. You've got to have a strategy as to how we're going to attack this from a communication standpoint. Starting out early in the process and laying out reasonable timelines. The process can take, you know, sometimes better than a year before you're even digging a hole in the ground to build a new building, for example, or or even starting to renovate a building. It can take a long time understanding what that is, having a group, again, tip of the spear type leadership that says, I'm not going to take no for an answer. It's going to take a long time. We're going to persevere. We're going to get this done because this is important because I believe in my community and I want to be a part of making my community better and serving the families in my community. Um, It's going to take that kind of group and it's just laying out those expectations early on for that group, um, walking them through. This is what other communities, similar size, maybe similar challenges, this is what they did. This is how long it took. You know, Yours is going to be a little different, but continually having that opportunity to be in front of the communication um, and understanding it's going to take time. And we start getting it out in little pieces. And then eventually we get really splashy with fundraisers and all kinds of great stuff. Um, and we'll get there, but it's going to take time. And so continue to encourage each other and have a good communication strategy.
1: Okay. Thank you for answering that. Yeah. All right. We're getting close on time, Dan. So I'm going to begin to wrap us up. Are there any last words of advice that you have for people listening um, that we didn't cover already?
0: The impact of childcare on the economic health of a community cannot be understated. It is a critical component, not only to serve families and serve children, but to serve the community as a whole, even if you don't have kids. It's about economic — and maybe it's not growth. Maybe it's just staving off um, population decrease. Mm-hmm. And, and I certainly am concerned in my community about forced consolidation someday and, and how terrible that would be for our community to lose its lose the high school um, or, or middle school or the elementary school. You know, it, it hurts a community and then community starts to shrink. People start to move out. And so understanding how important um, the global and when I say global, I don't mean the world, but I mean, the global effect of your community, what childcare can do in your community is um, is really scary there are resources out there. There are paths towards success, um, and, and your success in, in your individual community may be completely different than the vision of success in another community. Depends on, again, on the unique situation, the size and the opportunities um, that you have, the cooperation you have with partnerships and many other factors, and it will be daunting, but it absolutely can be done. There are others that have done it before, and there are paths to follow and, and ways to avoid those landmines. Um, you know, there's a a path that can be laid out through experience and and critical um, strategic thought that we can find a successful path for any community.
1: Thank you so much for that, Dan. If people are interested in getting touch with your firm, they want to talk to you about maybe pursuing something like this, or they just want to follow along and see the cool projects that you guys are working on. Is there a way that our listeners can tap into that and follow you?
0: Sure. We've got a website, uh, as most do, leviarchitecture.com. Um, you do have to spell architecture all the way out. Uh, it, we should have abbreviated that perhaps, but we didn't. Uh, but leviarchitecture.com um, is our website, or you can call our office. We're in the book. We're online. Uh, numbers 319-277-5636. My email address is, is on the website. Um, shoot me a line. Say, hey, this is what we're thinking about. This is what we're doing. Um, we get these emails, and we sit down, and we just we just talk. And, and we don't charge um, uh, you know for just simple consultation we're just talk about some stuff we might spend an hour and a half on the phone talking about your unique situation and opportunities do a little research give you a little some, some pointers on some places to look maybe gather a little bit of information um, throw it at you um say here review this uh, check this out you know see what your thoughts are give me a call back in a couple of weeks after you have a chance to review it and maybe talk to some other people we'll offer some suggestions and maybe we can help lead you on a path and maybe it's not even with us in our firm maybe it's just um, encouraging you that this can be done. We've got some opportunities and you've got somebody else that you want to use for specific design or pre-design all that stuff before we actually do architecture that we talked about, the pro forma, the marketing, um, the, the, the communication strategy, um, the grant location and sourcing, all of those things. Maybe you've got other groups that are willing to do that. And that's fantastic. We're not here to try to get every child care project in the state. Um, we're just here to be a resource and to try to help people.
1: Awesome. And we will make sure listeners, if you're listening on a walk or on your commute, that if you go to my website, mollyknuthmedia.com slash podcast, we will have all of these links and Dan's contact information in today's episode notes. So it's easy to find. All right, Dan, we always wrap up every guest interview with a few off the cuff questions that we call our small talk round. I didn't put these in the prep questions. They just come to me and Uh we go with stream of thought. Okay. So are you ready for this? Shoot. First question, and this is a tough one. What was the hardest part about becoming a Cyclone fan after you were a fan of the Hawks?
0: Oh, that hurts. That <laughs> hurts my heart.
1: I'm just kidding. <laughs> all I had to do was
0: roll into town and it just, the glory just washed over me. And I was <laughs> cleansed of that Hawkeye-ness and it was all Cyclones now, baby.
1: Oh, for anybody who is listening in Iowa, You can't see this right now, but I have had to look at the inside of, I don't even know what the name of this arena is Coliseum.
0: Come on. Everybody knows Hilton magic. Don't even pretend.
1: (laughs) But that's Dan's background on his Zoom chat. So I had to give him a little grief about that. (laughs) All right. Question number two, Dan, let's say that you have a weekend off and nobody is texting you about projects and deadlines. Where will you be found?
0: Yellowstone or the Tetons.
1: We went there last year and it was, I cannot quit thinking about that mountain range. I All my kids totally talking agree. about is
0: wanting to go back. Jackson Hole is absolutely spectacularly gorgeous. It's, there's a reason it became our first national park. It is absolutely stunning in real life. I Pictures don't do it justice.
1: No, flying into that airport. Did you guys fly or drive?
0: No, we drove, we drove the whole way. It, we had a great time. Great time. We do want to uh-huh. fly in next time though. And then Yellowstone, you can't do Yellowstone in in even a day or you can't even do it in two days. It, you, it, it's yeah, absolutely I it. breathtaking.
1: I, I will hundred percent vouch for that. So even though we don't agree on college sports teams, I'm on, <laughs> on board with you on vacation locations. All right. <laughs> All right. Last question. Has there been a childcare project in particular that you have felt like really fulfilled by, or that like you have a really like fun memory about? Hmm.
0: Well, I'm gonna. I think Dizer uh, working with Wanda was so fantastic. She is just a, she's she's a hoot. Um, a great lady, very witty. Uh, she can be a little wandering and she'd admit it. She really can get after you if she didn't like something going on. She's gonna tell you about it. She really kept me on my toes. Um, but uh, what we what we've seen from uh, the growth within just Little Knights uh, Learning Center. Um, from when they were in the school to where they're in the new facility now and they have room to expand the cooperation that they garnered with the school district and the community. And then what, what we've now been hearing about going on in their community, all of our clients, we say, hey, if you want to talk to somebody about what childcare can do to your community, call Wanda. She'll tell you how important it is. She'll tell you. Again, she volunteers before they built. She still volunteers there now. She was involved in every aspect of that. marketing. Uh, project assessment, design, build, all of it. And, and she will tell you just story after story of how important and the, and the positive impact it's having on that community. And so to say that we were you know, blessed to be a part of that uh, particular uh, project and, and, and to you know just say that we had a hand in what's going on in that community now, um, really just, uh, it just warms the heart. It really does.
1: Thank you for that. And we'll make sure for listeners too, we'll link to that in our show notes as well so that people can see what Little Nights is all about and have that access. So thank you for your time, Dan. I have so appreciated our conversation and we could have kept going for another 60 minutes, but I so appreciate your guidance. And I know that there will be people who have really great projects that result from what we heard from you today. So thank you.
0: Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about childcare. We could do this all day.
1: Hey there, thank you so much for tuning in to another edition of the Small Minded Podcast, the place on the internet where we celebrate small towns, small businesses, and the people who love them. If you enjoyed this episode, we would be forever grateful to have a review of your experience over on iTunes, Spotify, our website, or wherever you tuned in today. And as always, we welcome you sharing this podcast with your friends and family on social. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Small minded Podcast or at mollyknuthmedia.com slash podcast. Please go out, make today a good one. Take a small step towards a bigger impact. Here's to a life well-lived being small-minded.